So it is a great and collectively beautiful privilege to be able to pray together. Um, it's just part of the deep call of the church, and it is something that we should not take lightly. And hopefully is not a once-a-month thing that we do, but a way to continue this is to pray for each other, those things that we, we echo, check on each other, love each other. Hebrews has been a picture of that idea of community, right? It's written or preached, if you will, uh, to a congregation, to a gathering of people, most likely something like this. A gathering of Hebrew believers that have come together, that are facing intense struggle, that aren't all doing perfectly well. As we talked about over these past 37 weeks, right, part of the struggle the Hebrew church was having was they were having a lot of pressure from the world. They were facing pressure from their outside sources, from their inside sources, from the community, from their family, from people to give up this Jesus thing, to walk away from this idea of Christianity and return to Judaism. Or, or maybe even not even return to it, maybe just adopt the Jewish principles into your Christian faith as the Judaizers were pushing. That Jesus wasn't totally enough, but if you wanted to follow Christ and be saved, then you had to fully keep the Jewish law, right? Which is, of course, false teaching. Um, struggle is anything we add to the gospel is actually telling us that Jesus isn't totally sufficient. And so our author is saying, look, a life in Christ is better. It's better. And he spent basically the first 10 weeks telling us how. He's better than the law, better than the angels, better than the prophets. He is the great high spirit. All these things that we went through looking at that, explaining that Jesus is better than all this system has to offer. That even though you're facing pressure from your family to return, or you're facing pressure from your family to give up, or from the community to give up, Jesus, what Jesus offers cannot be replicated in any way. And we've walked through that for 13 37 weeks, we've explored the highs and lows. We've been on these deep theological dives. We've swum through the Old Testament some. We've come back out on the other side, and we've landed in chapter 13, which is sort of this great summary of this sermon, if you will, right? This message. It's this kind of great tie-up, and it's incredibly practical. And the practical side that we've explored in the past five weeks has really been, how do we as a Christian community interact with things that are really valuable to the Lord? The idea of how we interact with community, how we interact with marriage, money, elders, leaders. And as Brandon talked about last week, false teaching. How do we deal with the lies that are being propagated with inside the community? So we've looked very closely at some very specific things. As he closes out this message, and he's about to tie it all up, and he's going to remind us basically right where he began, which is we need Jesus. He is actually all that we need. And so this morning, we're going to go on one last kind of deep theological dive where our author, our preacher is going to remind us and tell us that, listen, the world is going to tell you there are other answers and there aren't. It's going to tell you the answers are in the system out there. It's going to tell you the answers are in the, the Jewish system or in the cultural system, and they're not. They're not at what makes you feel comfortable. There is one answer to all of those struggles and the, those, those things. And that thing is that person is Jesus. That is the answer. And so we're going to be in two places this morning. We're going to be in, in Hebrews 13 and we're going to be in Leviticus 20, uh, 16. Yeah, Leviticus 16. Because he's going to take us into this religious system and show us why the world is lying to us. Now, he's going to graft us in, but keep in mind, he's speaking to this group of Hebrew believers that would very much know what he's talking about. And so we're going to have to do a little bit of a historical dive this morning to get us all caught up. But it's going to be really important because what we're going to learn this morning is this. Jesus is all we need. Jesus atones for his people. Jesus was separated for his people. And we are actually invited to go 
to Jesus, and it's going to change everything. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to turn to Hebrews 13. And if you're one of those people that just kind of needs to know what's happening, uh, go ahead and put your finger in Leviticus 16, because we're going to be over there as well. So I don't want you to be caught off guard. Um, my dad growing up was, when we went to a church that had a bulletin that had like every hymn, every scripture reading, everything was in there. And he would spend the first 15 minutes not paying any attention to anything, but marking every place in the Bible that we would be. Um, or in the hymnal, and he would have everything lined out in there. And, and so he kind of passed that along to me. I kind of have to know where we're headed. And so if that's you, stick your finger in, in uh, Leviticus 16, because we'll be there as well. So um, we prayed a little bit, but let's just real quickly just pray and ask the Lord to just teach our hearts, and then we will dive right into that. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to open your word. We pray that you would teach us. Just, just teach our hearts, Lord. An encounter with your word is an encounter with you. We don't take that lightly. We don't invite you in this place. We know that you're already here. God, there is nowhere that we can go to escape your presence. So you're in air that we breathe, Lord. So teach us through your word. Take a moment right where you sit and just ask the Lord to teach your heart. It's gonna be some complicated stuff or at least some stuff you're gonna have to track with this morning. But ask the Lord to teach you, to show you the, the beautiful pieces in this. Ask the Lord to teach your heart this morning. As we do each week, take a moment and pray for someone beside you, around you, in front of you, behind you. Just pray for somebody else. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Everything that unfolds here on Sunday morning is not about you. All those things I typically say each week are true. It's not. Pray for somebody else. Be someone that cares about the spiritual growth of the people around you and just pray for them. Maybe you don't even know them. If you're here for the first time, just try that with us. Just pray for somebody around you. Lord, we turn the rest of our morning over to you. We ask that you would be glorified and exalted, that you would teach us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been in 13 for about six weeks now. We kind of got, I kind of bogged us down by talking about one verse at a time. That was my fault. But we just couldn't get past it. And then I got COVID and I made Brandon teach about false teaching, which is really dangerous because Brandon gets really, really fired up. Uh, and so when he starts talking about false teachers or whatever, he's probably told you those stories. Like he gets, he was like, so he was supposed to go all the way through 14. He calls me, he just can't do it, man. He goes, you got me stuck on these false teachers. I might curse. And I, that's kind of where we, we land with brain. I was like, all right, that's fine. I mean, there won't be anything these people hadn't heard before. So, uh, so anyway, we're going to actually take one of the verses that he ended on, and that's where we're going to start. We're going to start in verse 9 because it actually is what ties all this in. And so if you hear last week, Brandon was talking about false teachers and the things that we're facing as, as believers, the lies that get propagated and how we need to return to the word. But we're going to pick up in 9, and we're going to go down through 14 this morning as we're going to talk and see how our author is going to take us to this place that says all these things that we've talked about, whether it's money and marriage or whether it's community or our elders or false teaching, like none of that matters if you don't understand the single truth, which is Jesus is all that we need, right? And so he's going to basically tell our believers that that old sacrificial system, the old way of life doesn't have anything for you but that Jesus has given you all that you need and he's all that we need already. And that's both for you, for myself, and for these hearers. So let's take a look at that and then we'll kind of break it apart together. So this is 13, 9 through 14. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace and not by ceremonial foods, which are of no value to those who eat them. We have an altar from which those who minister to the tabernacle have no right to eat. 
The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most high place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside of camp. And so Jesus suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore, for here we have not an enduring city, but we are looking for a city that is to come. Through Jesus, oh, I'll stop there, a city that is to come. Now, if you just glance at that, you're thinking, all right, we'll just keep on going, right? Because that seems relatively complicated. We're talking about ritual foods. We're talking about Jesus going outside of the city. We're talking about atonement. It's the part of Hebrews that we get into and we're like, I'm sure that's pretty good, but I'm going to jump down to sacrifice of praise in verse 15 and just kind of keep moving. But we don't get that luxury because we're going through these things verse by verse, line by line, word by word. And so we're going to figure out what it is our author is actually trying to tell our Hebrew audience. What's he trying to tell them and what's he trying to tell you and me? And it's actually really, really important because he's laid out in 13 these incredible things that we need to do practically as followers of Christ to live the Christian life. We talked about marriage, talked about money, talked about leadership, talked about community. We've talked about not paying attention to false teaching. He's saying all these things are of incredible value, but they're of no value if you don't know what to do with the person of Jesus Christ. You cannot do them. In fact, doing them bears and brings about nothing if you don't understand that you cannot do them or do anything without Christ, that we first and foremost need Jesus, and he is all that you need. Now, for you and I, that makes sense. But for this group of Hebrew believers, they are being pressed with an opposite way of thinking, which is Jesus is not all that you need. In fact, if you have Jesus, you also need the sacrificial system. You also need the Old Testament law. Or as family members were saying, you don't need Jesus at all. You need to come back to us. You need to return to your family. You need to embrace your Jewish roots. And you need to renounce Jesus. So what they're hearing from a community, from the culture, from the world, is get rid of that because, number one, Jesus either isn't enough or Jesus is nothing. That's what they're being pressed with. And so our author is talking about marriage and money and leadership, but he's saying, look, none of those things matter if you don't know what to do with the person of Jesus Christ. And so the first thing that he basically says, he's wrapping up this entire book, is kind of taking us back to where he started, which is Jesus is not only enough, Jesus is actually better. We need Jesus. And this is where he starts in verse 9, right? He says, listen, Do not get carried away by all kinds of teachings, right? There's all kinds of teachings. Brandon talked about this last week, false teachings. Not just one, even way back then in the shadow of the apostles, there was all kinds of lies that were being propagated as teaching. And we can talk and break those down. Brandon went through some of them last week, so I won't do it now. But there's all kinds of teaching that takes our eyes and our shift away from Jesus, from Scripture, infiltrates it with other things and said, this is what you need. Either know Jesus or Jesus and other things, and none of that actually works. He's saying, don't get carried away by strange teachings. In other words, anything alternate to what we're teaching, you don't get carried away by it. It may sound sexy. It may sound right. It may tickle you where you need to be tickled. It may make it work in your mind, and it will carry you away. But don't get carried away by it. You know why? It's good for your hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by ceremonial foods. Listen, he said, here's what he's saying. Here's why you need Jesus. Because of grace. Don't let your hearts get taken away by strange teachings or your mind taken away by strange teachings, but it is good for you to essentially be nourished by grace and not by ceremonial foods which have no value. So he makes a shot at that ritual system that told 
Jewish people, there were certain foods they could eat and they couldn't eat. And that system was in place to separate them from the world. So in its propagation, it wasn't wrong. But since Jesus came and fulfilled it, it had no place anymore. And so he's saying there's a world out there that's going to try and teach you things that are contrary to Christ. There's also a world out there which you're very familiar with that's going to tell you that you have to return to the old way of living. This ritual way of living that will nourish you through the things that you eat and not what Christ has given you. And you know what Christ has given you? He has given you grace. You can't carry out these ideas of community, money, marriage, leadership without grace. None of you can do it on your own. What Christ supplies is grace. It is good for you, he says. It is good for your hearts to be strengthened by grace. In other words, your strength does not come from the ceremonial system or foods that you can and can't eat. Your strength as a follower of Christ only comes from grace. Now, this is important for us because we try and perform for the Lord. We try and do things as believers. We try and pick ourselves up by our bootstraps. If things are going wrong, we try to pray more, do more, be more, show up more. But what he's saying is it's good for you to essentially be nourished and cared for by grace. In other words, you can't. You can't. You can't do these things. You cannot save your marriage on your own. You cannot alleviate your financial anxieties on your own. You cannot eliminate your need for community, true, real biblical community on your own. You cannot wish those things into being. You need grace. You're sinful. You're broken. You need Jesus. And his first point in all of this, as he's getting ready to take us on this deep dive, is to say, look, Jesus is all that you need. Don't try and substitute into your Christian life other things, right? Don't try and put into the things, of the, the things of the world into your Christian faith. You don't need foods that are sacrificial in their systems that have been done away with. You don't need other teaching. You don't need a self-help book on this. You don't need to find the greatest podcast, the greatest author, and have him explain to you what God has already told you. He's saying you need grace. You need grace for yourself that Christ has given you first and foremost. So he said, listen, this is why Jesus is going to be enough, and he's going to explain it to us. This is what he goes on to say. And this is where things get a little complicated and a little wordy, but we're going to break it down. He says, by grace, you don't need those ceremonial foods. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy places of sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside of camp. Now, that's where you kind of go, huh? Like what? That is, I don't even understand what he's saying there. So he says, we have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The priest carries the blood of animals in the most holy place, the offering that's burned up, consumed completely outside of camp. So in order to get this, we've got to think Hebrew a little bit. We've got to backtrack and look at our Old Testament system, which we've explored quite a bit in Hebrews. But I'm going to take you back there a little bit, and that's what we're going to look at Leviticus 16. But there's two things that our author, our preacher is saying here. One, Jesus atones for his people. And two, Jesus is separated or exiled for his people. Those are the two things he's basically getting at. He's saying, this is why you need Jesus. Because there are two things that are happening that have to happen for salvation that you can't do. Atonement, right? You cannot do that. And being separated. And he's going to put those things together to show us exactly why. So the first thing he says is this, is this idea of atonement. 
So the high priest, right, he says, there is an altar for which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. So one of the ways you were compensated as a priest back in the day was there were a lot of sacrifices that were taking place in the Old Testament for lots of different things. But one of the ways you were compensated was if somebody brought an animal sacrificed, a ram, a cow, um, a goat, something like that, you would drain its blood, you would use its blood as part of the sacrifice, and you were allowed to consume part of its meat or keep it for your family. That was just part of the process. There were a, a certain amount of sacrifices that you were allowed to do that with. So you could gain or you could be nourished by the meat that was made as a sacrifice, right? So that was part of the promise. But our author says here, there is actually an altar in which those that serve in the tabernacle can't be nourished by. So if they're nourished by the sacrifice, there is actually an altar or a sacrifice that won't nourish those that are working in the temple. You know what he's referring to? He's talking about the idea of Jesus. Because if you can be nourished by the sacrificial system, right, that's what brings about your, like, compensation, a benefit for you. He's saying, listen, church, believers, there is actually an altar that exists that you are a part of that doesn't nourish those that are a part of the old way of life. And he said, those that work in the temple, or those that work in the tabernacle, they don't have the right to eat from the altar that you do. Now this sounds complicated, but it's actually really incredible because what he's saying is that when you give your life and heart to Jesus, you have the right and you have the freedom to be nourished by an altar that those that live under the, under the, the sacrificial system won't ever be nourished by. And that's Jesus. Those that work in the tabernacle have no right to eat. In other words, those that are following the old sacrificial system have rejected Jesus or aren't giving their life to Christ have no right at the table of God. And this is important, right? And then he goes on to explain this idea of atonement. And atonement's really, really important. So let's look at those verses together again. We have an altar from which those, we, now he's calling you a minister, which is actually another, I could spend another hour talking about how incredible it is, that you and I are part of the great priesthood of all believers, right? So he says, we have an altar which those who minister in the tabernacle have no right to eat from. So we are part of the great priesthood of believers. We have been gathered in as professing faith in Christ. You are now a priest. You are now have access to the great high priest Christ, as we talked about way back in chapter three, right? And you have rights to be nourished by the blood and the life and the death of Christ. And those that are part of the Levitical system don't. In other words, they are excluded. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside of the camp. Now he's talking about one specific sacrifice here, and it's a sacrifice of atonement. There were a lot of different sacrifices in the Old Testament system, but the sacrifice of atonement was the most important. It happened once a year. We've talked about this at length, where the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and he would make a sacrifice for the sins of the entire community. So he would literally take the, all the sin of himself and of the community of Israel, and they would sacrifice to restore relationship to the Lord. Let's look at how Leviticus talks about the actual sacrifice of atonement and what took place there. So we're going to switch over to Leviticus 16 and verse 20. And we're going to listen to how the Levitical picture plays out this idea of the sacrifice of atonement. So it says this in verse 20. When Aaron had finished making the atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, 
he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess it over it, all the wickedness and all the rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins. He's to put them on the goat's head. He then sends the goat away into the desert in the care of an appointed man for the task. The goat will carry itself and all the sins into a solitary place, and the man shall release it into the desert. Then Aaron is to go into the tent of meeting, take off the linen garments he put on before he entered the most holy place. He is to leave them there. He shall bathe himself with water in a holy place and put on his regular garments. He shall come out of the sacrifice, the burnt offering, for himself and for the people, and make no atonement for himself for the people. He shall also burn the fat of the sin offering on the altar. The man who releases the goat as a scapegoat must wash his clothes and bathe himself, and afterwards he may come back into the camp. All right, a lot of world wordy things to get to this point. What's the picture? So the idea of this, this sacrifice of atonement was this. The high priest Aaron would basically take a goat, after doing all the preparations for the actual sacrifice of atonement, right? The sacrifice that was, the blood would be, would be sprinkled on the people, on the altar. He would take this goat and he would place his hands on it. And symbolically he would confess and lay on the head of this goat all the sins of himself and the people of Israel. And then they would appoint a man that would take that goat and that goat would be taken out of town and into the wilderness. So we get the idea of a scapegoat, right? You didn't never know that's a very biblical concept. That goat becomes the sin of all the people, symbolically. Laid upon there by the hands of the high priest, all the sin of Israel for the year, all of his own sin, and sent out into the wilderness. And then Aaron goes back and he, after taking the blood from the original sacrifice, he takes that sacrifice outside of camp and they burn that entire sacrifice. All of it is consumed. All of it. Outside of camp. And the sins of the people are atoned for, and God restores his relationship with Israel. That's sort of the way the picture of the atonement went. All right? Now, it's important to understand a couple of things here. What our author's getting at is this Jesus atones for his people. Now, who is the scapegoat in our biblical picture understanding of Christ? Well, it's Jesus, right? We talk about the idea that Jesus bore the sin of the world, right? The sin of humanity. He takes on all the due penalty of God, like the scapegoat. Jesus becomes the atoning sacrifice for humanity, not for Israel once a year, but for all of humanity. And not just symbolically, but all the sin of the world is placed on Christ. And Christ is banished into the wilderness. So we have both this idea of atonement and this idea of separation. Everything takes place outside of camp. Now think about the idea of separation, if you will, in a moment. Remember what happened when Adam and Eve broke harmony with God? What did God do? He sent them outside of the garden, outside of relationship with him. Separation is the idea of literally being physically and spiritually separated from God. So the idea of outside of camp, <clears throat> if you really look at the Old Testament, comes up in three different ways, mostly in Exodus and Leviticus. The first way it comes up is in someone that is unclean. Can be unclean a lot of different ways. Can be a physical thing, can be a spiritual thing. But when you were unclean, you had to go outside of camp for a period of time and cleanse yourself, or sometimes it was seven days or whatever. But if you were unclean or sinful, you had to be away from camp outside of God's presence because of all your sin. 
The second way it's talked about is that when someone blatantly sins against the Lord, they are sent outside of camp, either to be cleaned or as punishment. So when sin rears its head, that person is found out and they are sent out of camp because they had to be away from God's presence. The third way that we see it used is in this atonement offering, where the carcass of that animal that was used as the atonement, typically a blemishless lamb, was taken outside of camp and was completely consumed in fire. You see, what's happening here is that God in his infinite, holy, majestic wonder separates all that is sinful. And so not just the people, but anything that is sinful is separated from God and needs to be atoned for. And so what our author is saying is that Jesus is not only the atonement, he is the sacrifice. And he is sacrificed outside of camp like the atonement offering. So where was Jesus crucified? Was he crucified on the temple mount? No. He was taken outside of the city where the criminals were killed. That Jesus was the sacrifice exiled by God for the sins of the people. Do you remember what Jesus cried out when he was on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know why Jesus cries that out? Because in that moment he's experiencing the entire separation of himself from holy, mighty, majestic Father God. So what our author is saying here is this. You need Jesus. And here's why. He is both the atonement and the sacrifice. He experienced the atonement for our sins, or he took on the atonement for our sins for us, and he took on the exile or separation of your sin for you. This is the penalty that you were deserving, that I was deserving. And he's looking at these Hebrew Christians saying, this is what you deserve, to be exiled outside of camp, bearing the sin of what you have done, to be consumed to ashes. And he says, but Jesus did it all for you. You don't get what you deserve. That when you put your faith in Christ, he becomes the atonement and the sacrifice. He takes all the sin of humanity, scapegoated outside of town, and is consumed by the wrath of God. But it doesn't end there, right? That's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus is resurrected. He conquers death. The consuming of God's wrath doesn't end there. God's love and his beautiful redemption raises Christ from the dead and he becomes victorious over all of that. And this is what he's explained. Now you and I kind of, we may get this theologically, but to these Hebrew believers, this is radical stuff where they're going, the whole reason for the atonement, the whole reason for this exile, the scapegoat, the whole reason for this sacrifice was fulfilled in Christ. Like we no longer have to do that sacrificial system, sacrificial foods. None of those things nourish us. We can eat from an altar which those that practice an old way of life can never eat. We are nourished from the altar that Christ was sacrificed upon, which was the cross. And we, as the priesthood of all believers, have access to the spiritual nourishment because Jesus atones and Jesus is the sacrifice. And therefore, it is totally Complete. And so when Jesus on the cross says, it is finished, he is not referring to his last breath. He's referring to the atonement process. It is finished. That I therefore am the exile, I am the, the scapegoat of sins, and I am the sacrifice all rolled into one. And when Jesus dies, that is complete. Fulfilled. And then Christ, of course, is raised from the dead, giving us victory over life and death. And so our authors look at these people saying, this is why you don't need anything else. 
You don't need other teaching, right? You don't need other sacrifices. You don't need other foods. Jesus is totally and sufficiently enough. And then he gives us the greatest news of all. We'll wrap everything up with this. He says, you get now to go to Jesus. Like that's the incredible picture of all this. Listen to what he says in 13 and uh, 14. Or we'll, I guess we'll go 12. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate so that the people may be made holy through his own blood. So that's why Jesus suffered outside the gate. Look at verse 13. Let us then go to him outside of camp, bearing the disgrace he bore, for here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. So he says, listen, therefore let us go to him outside of the city and bear the disgrace that he bore, for here we don't have anything that lasts. But out there, we have a city to come. So what the author is saying to, these, saying to you and I, is saying to these Hebrew believers is, listen, there is nothing for you here in this world. Nothing for you here. Not the praise of people, not the comfort of your family, not all the things they're telling that you need, not anything else. Nothing for us is here. Let's go outside the city where Jesus bore all that disgrace and let's bear it with him. Let the world yell at us what they want to. Let us tell us that we're terrible, that we're zealots, or that we're awful, that we're ignorant, that we're intolerant, whatever it is. Let them yell away. Let's bear the disgrace that he bore because this place has nothing for us. We are waiting for a city that is to come. And so he's saying, you're going to face persecution from your family, from your parents. They're going to yell at you. They're going to tell you you need something else. Don't sit here and look for your sufficiency in this place. You'll never find it. But as followers of Christ, let's walk outside of this city that has nothing for us. And let's bear the disgrace that Jesus bore. Let the world shout what they want to shout. Because what we're waiting for is a city that's coming. A promise that's eternal. Now, this is mind-blowing stuff because essentially what he's saying is leave it all behind and go to Jesus. And leaving it all behind was both a spiritual and literally an emotional and physical thing. Don't worry what they say and what they tell you you have to have. This city has no future. Go to Jesus. They're going to call you all kinds of names. So what? Bear his disgrace. Think about what they, they, the scapegoat, right? Carrying the sin of humanity outside the city gates to be hung between two thieves, to be spit upon and mocked. Bear his disgrace. So when the world begins to mock you or make fun of you or tell you you're ridiculous, welcome it. Bear this grace that Jesus bore because you are waiting for something that is so much bigger and better than what anything this world has to offer. And that's where our author takes our people. That's where he's taking you and I. There is an altar of which those that want to be nourished can't because it's only in Christ. You need Jesus. He's all you need. He is the atonement. He is the sacrifice. He is the separation. But he is victorious. Go to him. Quit trying to find joy in a city in which you have no home and which you have no belonging. And that's where most of us live. We're trying to make a home in a place that we weren't created for. We're trying to take all kinds of other teaching and infiltrate it and press it into our souls to somehow appease the emptiness in us. We're trying to do both this and that. And our author says, you can't. It's just Jesus. So quit looking for a home in the city. Quit trying to find sufficiency in financial situations here. Quit trying to solve your deep marital problems with worldly solutions. Nothing for you in this city will last. 
but go outside the city, bear some disgrace and humility, and you will find all that you need in Christ. Now, at the end of a sermon, like think about this. If you're in that audience, man, this is so motivating. It's so like, yes, that's what I need. I need Jesus. I've been trying to find answers to all my struggles and everything else to live both here and there at the same time. And you know what? That's exactly where most of us live. We want to live with one foot in this world and one foot out of it because we become very comfortable here. But what our author's saying is, listen, there's nothing here for you. Go outside the city and bear a little disgrace and you're going to find a beautiful home that's welcoming you in Christ because he's all that you need. I try and tell myself this all the time, which is, Jesus, you are more than enough. More than enough. Whenever the world tries to tell me that I need to add something or I need this or I need praise or I need support or I need whatever these things are, right? I try and remind myself I don't. Nothing this world says it has for me will last. And what author's getting ready to do as he wraps all this up is going through all these deep places to show our Hebrew believers and you and I that no matter what the system is, it's just really Jesus. It's not Jesus and and Jesus plus. It's just Jesus. He is the atonement. He is the sacrifice. He is all that you need. Get out of the city. Go outside the gates where he bore your shame and your sin and you will find home and you will find joy in places that you never thought you could. If you're living in a place today where you feel like your faith in Christ is passionless, is in the middle of the mediocrity, is, is this a place where it's just empty, ask yourself, have I ever, and how long has it been since I truly reflected on what Christ has done for me? That he became the scapegoat and the exile and the separation, which is what I should be. Like I should be outside of that city, consumed completely by God's wrath. Through the penalty of my own sin. But Jesus did it already. And therefore, I'm going to go to Jesus. I'm going to fall in love with a God that gave his life for me. And I'm going to wait for the city that he brings. Because that's my home. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to just get into your word. And I know it's deep and a little bit complicated, but it's just so beautifully laid out. And if we truly understand the breadth of scripture, Lord, this is mind-bending, life-altering things. So Lord, remind us as we close our time in worship that we really just need Jesus. There's nothing else. No other teaching, no other nourishment, no other foods, no other supplements, no other blogs, podcasts, self-help books. None of those things are going to solve a problem that Jesus hasn't already solved. Now they're great for our spiritual lives and they can add depth and things, but they are not going to be what saves us. They are not going to solve any problems. So Lord, let us look to Christ first. And as we grow in maturity in Christ, Lord, all those tools that you've given us can be great assets. But it's Jesus first and Jesus only. Let us remember that not only is Jesus the Savior of our world, but he is the atoning sacrifice. He took all of my sin outside of town in shame and was hung between two thieves, was spit upon and mocked because of me and for me. He is the atonement and the sacrifice and the exile all rolled into one. But he's victorious. The death no 
could not contain him. It did not hold him, Lord. He was victorious, Lord. You have raised him from the dead. That if we profess our faith in Christ, Lord, we have not what this old city offers, what an old sacrificial system says, not a performance-driven thing in which we earn your salvation or earn your love or earn your merit. None of that works. But Lord, we get to go to the one that bore our shame and await a beautiful city, a heavenly home that is coming and that is promised to those who trust in Christ. So Lord, let the world throw at what it wants. Let it list all kinds of names and tell us we're crazy about all kinds of things. Let us tell us that our morality is broken and that we should adopt theirs. Lord, let it do all that. I'm gonna sit outside the city with my Savior and I'm gonna wait on the right city that's to come, a heavenly home. So Lord, as we close our time in worship, press those things on our hearts. Help us truly go to you. In Jesus' name. Let's stand together and close our time in worship this morning.
And so that's the giant call in all this is to, to see these things and say, listen, I need Jesus. In order to do the things that we're being called to do, live life we're being called to live, it's not about performance or doing it right. It's about saying, I have to have Christ for my marriage, for my finances, for the way that I live in community. All these things rely upon my relationship with Jesus. He is the atonement. He is the separation. He is the sacrifice. And we have the great and beautiful privilege to go to him because he first rescued us. Take that truth, go outside of the city, bear what he bore, wait for this glorious thing that's to come. Go in peace.